This show is brought to you by Podetize, podcast hosting and done-for-you production services that get you heard by more of your ideal listeners. Visit podetize.com to book a free strategy call. That's P-O-D-E-T-I-Z-E.com. Welcome to Pod Tease. Each week, we'll grant your wish. We'll surprise and delight you with binge-worthy podcasts that are sure to become your new favorites. Our hand-picked selection of changemakers, rebels, do-gooders, educators, funnymakers, and more will make their way onto your new and noteworthy list. Do you have a show that you think needs to be featured? Check out our show notes for your chance to be our next Pod Tease. Welcome, pod teasers. I'm Karina Belizzi, one of your hosts. Today, I am bringing you something newsworthy. This week, something truly newsworthy happened in the world of soccer. Women who play soccer for the United States will now earn the same amount as men in a landmark new deal. This will change the future of soccer in America. And it's something that we should all just take a moment and celebrate. In honor of women soccer players everywhere, I want to introduce you to a show that you might not know about. This is a show hosted by Chris McGlynn, a gentleman who happens to be quite a fan of soccer and someone who became frustrated with the fact that we were always talking about men's soccer and the World Cup as it relates to them. He wanted to tell a different story, the hidden story of the women's game of soccer, Women have been playing soccer since the 1800s, and it has always been political. So with this show, Chris McGlynn explores everything we can find from the first female pro teams to the Forgotten World Cups. Listen in to this, his favorite episode thus far. It's called Bella Chow, and it centers around the history in a time in the world when sexism and fascism were more than just idle conversation. This was in Mussolini's Italy in 1932, when a group of high school girls play a soccer match in Italy. These young women challenge not just sexism, but fascism. And in so doing, they set off a series of remarkable events which will forever live on and which get detailed in this particular episode. So sit back, listen in, Let's mix it with Chris McGlynn. Women have been playing football for more than 150 years, and it's always been political. Some have been celebrated, but others have been ridiculed, criticized, and forgotten. This is the Forgotten 11, the hidden history of women's football. I'm not going to the White House. No. You know, there was a lot of critics talking about us, but we're back, so I suck in that one. <laughs> Give me the effing ball. Playing like a girl means you're a badass. Hi. I'm Chris McGlynn. Welcome to the Forgotten Eleven. Today on the show, the Italians. Before the first FIFA official Women's World Cup in 1991, Italy hosted several tournaments called the Mondialitos, or Little World. Why Italy? The Gruppo Femminile Calistico of Milan, or the Milan women's football team, was the first women's football team in Italy. Nearly everything we know about GFC Milan was rescued from obscurity by a gentleman named Marco Gianni. So thank you, Mr. Gianni. You can follow him on Twitter at Calciatrici1933 and follow this show 
at ForgottenXI. There used to be a BBC series called Connections. The host would start by giving you five or six random things, like the Battle of Hastings, the Cotton Gin, paper clips, and the Jumbo Jet. And then, over the course of the show, he would explain not just that they were connected, but that without the Battle of Hastings, you would never be able to build a Jumbo Jet. Here we go. Mussolini, GFC Milan, Hitler, the 1936 Berlin Olympics, the Italian Partisans, and the Women's World Cup. But first, an Italian lesson. Bella Ciao was a song of the Italian partisans who helped to defeat first Mussolini and then Hitler in World War II. Bella Ciao means goodbye, my darling. Here's the rest of the song in English. Goodbye, my darling. One morning, I woke up and I found the invaders. Oh, partisan, carry me away. I feel as if I am dying. And if I die a partisan, you must bury me. But bury me up in the mountains, under the shadow of a beautiful flower. And the people who pass by will say to me, what a beautiful flower. This is the flower of a partisan who died for freedom. Benito Mussolini was the fascist leader of Italy from 1922 to 1943. Adolf Hitler was the fascist leader of Germany from 1933 until 1945. Now, fascism is a bit much to explain for a soccer podcast, but we need a basic description for this episode. Fascism is the total control of nearly every aspect of life of an entire country by a single party with a single supposedly godlike leader. Now, th this is impossible, sort of. So the party and the leader, they create a story and an identity to serve as a model for everyone to follow. And the story is basically that Italy, or Germany, is a great nation and that every Italian can make Italy stronger if they act correctly and protect Italy from mysterious bad guys and bad thinking. The story is everything. Simple, right? Well, what if you get the story wrong? What if the story doesn't say anything about what you just saw or did? Italy is a very sexist society at the time, even more so under Mussolini. So here's the question for Italian fascists. A young, strong, healthy Italian man makes Italy stronger. Does a young, strong, healthy woman make Italy a better country? a stronger country. Our story today begins in 1932 in Tuscany, Italy, on the shores of the Mediterranean at a mansion called Via Celestina. A group of young tifosi played a football match in Italy. There had been a few pickup games in Italy, but this one was different. So what's a tifosi? Well, tifosi is a group of organized male fans. Tifosi is a group of female fans. The word comes from the disease typhus, or typhoid fever, as in, you've caught football fever. And a tifo is any organized activity by fans. Those giant banners you see before matches, Iceland's thunderclap, anything like that is a TIFO. But back to the mansion. A group of teenage women are on summer vacation from Milan. They play a match in a field next to Via Celestina. Not only do they love watching football, they now love playing football. They want to continue playing. But this is fascist and sexist Italy. This isn't in the story. They will need a plan, and they will need help. 
Under fascism, everything you do must be for the greater good or glory of the regime. These young women can't play soccer just because they like it. It has to be for the glory of Italy. And because Italy is a very macho place at the time, these women can't be seen as a threat to Italian men playing soccer, like the English women had been a decade before. They have to be careful, and they have to be clever. They know that the English and the French women play, which only adds to their determination to play. In August 1932, a young woman named Nini Zanetti writes to a sports paper with this question. Why shouldn't a women's soccer team exist in Italy? Wouldn't it be interesting to see that even in this kind of sport, the Italian woman can compete and perhaps outdo foreign women? And then, on the 14th of February, 1933, newspapers start seeing this ad. Football enthusiasm is spreading and winning over young Italians already attracted by other athletic sports. Thus, a nucleus of strong young ladies launches a brilliant initiative to establish the Gruppo Femminile Calistico in Milan, purely for gymnastic and training purposes. As for a women's championship, it will come later. For now, the Tifose are invited to send their applications to Miss Lusana Strigaro. Nini Zanetti, Lusana Strigaro, and their friends of the Gruppo Femminile Calistico of Milan have just set fire to Italy. Early that spring, a man named Ugo Cardosi becomes their financial sponsor, and he becomes the president of GFC Milan. In English, remember, that's Women's Soccer Team of Milan, or GFC Milan. Calistico means soccer, and these women are now officially calciatrici, female soccer players. Before they can really play, though, they need help. Women's sports is somewhat accepted in Italy, but it was individual sports, like tennis and gymnastics. There aren't many team sports, and football is, is a celebrated sport for Italian men. So the young ladies start to write to newspapers. When they write, they talk about working together for a common goal, about sacri sacrificing their individual efforts for the common good of the team, about how the success of the team is more important than their personal success. GFC Milan are using fascist rhetoric to show that women playing soccer is the ultimate expression of their dedication to the cause of Italian fascism. They argue that it would be unfascist for women not to play football. And we should point out here, the women of GFC Milan at first were all high school students, and while there's no definite proof they were anti-fascist, none of the players were ever registered in any fascist organizations. Also, they start signing their names to the letters, which is dangerous. If they get their argument wrong, they could be jailed or worse. So here are their names. Nini Zanetti, Losana Strigaro, Silvia Del Mestre, Frida Marchi, Maria Lucchese, Augusta Salina, Carla Frigerio, Maria Lovero, Angela Magnaggi, Honorina Comerio, Marcella Lapini, Annie Bota, Holly Montoan, Elena Capella, Wanda Del Delorto, Nidia Glengarni, Wanda Tori, Eva Carazzotti, Pina Mistura, Esther Del Pan, Brunilda Amadeo, and Rosetta Bocellini.
Here's another letter the women of GFC wrote. Apart from the fact that other nations like France and England have had for years several women's clubs and where various championships are held, we do not understand why young Italian women who are passionate about football should not play the game as well. We would ask why other sports are favored and encouraged from running to aviation. You can be a good young lady and practice at home purely for athleticism, the sport of football. Strengthen the body and refine the soul. That is our mission. They didn't win over all the papers, but they did win over Football Illustrated, or Calcio Illustrato. In the spring of 1933, Football Illustrated starts covering the GFC Milan practices. At first, they worry about the uniforms they wear. Th thankfully, they say, for modesty's sake, they wear, wear skirts with shorts underneath and long sleeve jerseys. And over the spring, for Football Illustrated, women playing football becomes normal-ish. Football Illustrated and GFC Milan almost completely ignore the so-called controversy of the woman footballer and just get down to the business of playing the game. Football Illustrated asks, asks the young striker Rosetta Bocellini, what's your biggest difficulty in the game? After a moment, Rosetta says, the header. The header is very difficult for me. They play a few matches in the early spring of 1933, before the authorities were really paying attention. There were some difficulties. Some of their first matches were played in street shoes, which included high heels because their boots hadn't come yet. And there's no big audience, but friends and press do come and watch the women play. There are a few full-page spreads in Football Illustrated, along with photos of the matches. And GFC Milan keeps writing even to the skeptical papers. Remember, they had to ask the government for permission to play. So when they asked the local fascist sports minister, he didn't know if it was a good fascist activity, if it fit the story of, of Italian fascism. So he sent the woman's request to Rome. And to their surprise, on April 1st, Leandro Arpinati, fascist head of Italian sport, said okay. As long as they didn't play in front of crowds, why not let the woman experiment? The skeptics, grudgingly, mostly, shut up. Also, there were some different rules. And the new rules were both sexist and fascist and messed up. So all Italians belong to Italy, right? And all Italian women could be mothers. So they couldn't do anything to hurt their chances of being mothers. Which means for the Calciatrici, they can't play a ball out of the air. Feet only. And they can't play in goal. So they recruit boys to play in goal. And here, there is a further restriction. The boys must be younger than the youngest female player because sexism. So their goalies, just to be safe, are 12 and 13 year old boys. By June of 1933, GFC Milan noticed there are other women's teams. And Alessandria, Turin, Rome, Parma, Venice, Bologna. All over northern Italy in the spring and summer of 1933, women's teams have sp sprung up seemingly out of thin air. GFC Milan's letter writing in the spring had inspired women all over northern Italy to take to the pitch. Italian women have caught football fever. The newspapers, even though the matches are played without fans, do show up to watch. Some of the players are winning over the skeptical press. Nini Zanetti and Rosetta Bocellini are making names for themselves in the press. The press reports that Rosetta Bocellini is a great striker, scoring 13 goals in seven practice matches. On the team, there is also her sister Luisa Bocellini, and the assistant coach of the team is sister Giovanna 
Bocellini, Barcelona. On June 11, 1933, GFC Milan play their first official match against themselves. Now, the Italian press had been talking about this for months, and while they were allowed to play, the fascists had said that they had to play away from the public eye. At their previous matches, only friends and family had watched. This time, there were a thousand spectators, and they played at least one more public match in July. Remember, fascists really liked the rules, so this could be bad. In 1932, the International Olympic Committee awarded the Summer Games to Berlin in the Weimar Republic of Germany. The following year, Hitler and the Nazis come to power. Hitler and the Nazis never officially abolished the Weimar Republic, but by 1933, it's Nazi Germany. The Nazis start enacting laws that say Jewish people and others can't be German citizens, that they have no legal rights. There are pogroms. A pogrom is when a bunch of fascists show up in a Jewish neighborhood and beat people up, break windows, things like that. The rest of the world starts thinking, hmm, maybe Hitler shouldn't host the Olympics. Some people did boycott the 1936 Olympics, but many did not. For both Hitler and Mussolini, German and Italian Olympic medals sh would show the world that fascism is a good thing. Maybe a little bit mean, but good for the countries that have it. The Italian fascists who granted permission for GFC Milan to play soccer was named Leandro Arpinati. He was in charge of all Italian sports. In early May of 1933, he fell out of favor with Mussolini and lost his job. Maybe worse. So over the summer, no one was really in charge of Italian sports. And this is probably why GFC Milan and the other women's football teams were allowed to play matches that summer. Over the summer, a team from Alessandria, Italy, had contacted GFC Milan and they had scheduled a match between the two teams for October 1st. The fascist authorities in Alessandria, knowing that this was a violation of the original terms granted by the government, canceled the match. In the fall of 1933, Achille Storace and Giorgio Facciaro become the heads of Italian sports. At the 1932 London Olympics, Italian women didn't win any Olympic medals. Storace and Facciaro have a new agenda for Italian athletes. Thanks in part to the efforts of Alice Miat, remember her? There will be a lot more women's sports at the Berlin Olympics in 1936. Italian fascists were not nearly as racist as the Nazis, but both the Nazis and the Italian fascists want to prove that the German and Italian so-called races are the best athletes in the world. To do this, they need Olympic medals. The women's events at the 1936 Berlin Olympics will be track and field, gymnastics, and basketball. Women's soccer won't be included partly because so many countries had followed England's ban on women's football. Just a quick aside here, the Germans did win the most medals in 1936, but African-Americans Jesse Owens, John Woodruff, and Mac Robinson, brother of baseball's Jackie Robson, won enough medals to embarrass Hitler and the Nazis. Over the fall and winter of 1933, the fascists, being fascist, sent coaches to all of the women's soccer teams that had just popped up in Italy. They sent basketball and track coaches. The message was clear. Play for Italian Olympic gold or don't play at all. By the end of 1933, Italian women's football is mostly gone. Many of GFC Milan's women did go into basketball and track, and many of them did later win Olympic medals. Women's soccer in Italy 
didn't last a full year. Except... In November 1943, Italy is in bad shape. Mussolini has fallen from power, and Hitler has invaded northern Italy. In Milan, five women, including a woman named Giovanna Bocellini Barcelona, create a secret group. The Gruppi di Defense della Donna, the Women's Defense Group, or GDD. That's the same woman who was the assistant coach of GFC Milan. The stated mission of the GDD is to help the partisans fight the fascist and to assist those affected by war. They grow from five women in November 43 to 70,000 women throughout northern Italy 18 months later. This is from their charter. The women of Italy, companions in battle, are marshalling for the fight which the Italian people are conducting to save themselves from utter devastation and to hasten liberation to reconstruct a country that is worn out, ruined by the fascist war in order to build a new society under the sign of liberty, love, and progress. Over the previous 20 years of fascist rule in Italy, women were mostly seen as just mothers, useful only for their ability to raise strong Italian soldiers. The GDD has had enough of that. Of the 70,000 women of the GDD, 35,000 were combat soldiers and officers. The other 35,000 organized strikes, work stoppages, demonstrations, and riots. They found housing for folks who had lost their homes to the war. They found food, cooking fuel for children and families. One of the recruiting slogans, one liter of milk, one piece of bread, one kilo of coal stolen from the enemy can mean the health of an Italian child. At the time, they could be arrested for their work and nearly 7,500 were. Another 2,400 were wounded in battle, killed, or executed. In many ways, the GDD is the backbone of the res resistance because women can go places and do things that men cannot. Who would suspect an old woman walking with a cane was smuggling documents, organizing a strike? The GDD published a magazine called Doidana, or New Woman, to push their very feminist agenda to include Italian women in Italian society once the fascists are defeated. Giovanna Bocellini Barcelona is one of the main writers for the paper. Among other things, they demand the vote and that Italian women are recognized as equals. From 1943 to 45, the GDD make a name from, for themselves in Italy. So much so that the Allies, the US and England, realize their importance in defeating the Nazis and the Allies reach out to work with them. These women have invested themselves in Italian society, politics, and the economy like never before, all while fighting a foreign and fascist regime. Women in Italy are not going back home. When an area is liberated, the women of the GDD continue working to help rebuild, to bring supplies to the partisans, anything they can to defeat the Nazis. Because the GDD is a secret society, it's difficult to know how many of these 70,000 women were tifose, or former players from 33. But remember, Giovanna's sisters, Rosetta and Luisa, were on the team, and it's entirely possible that they joined their older sister in the GDD.
when the war finally ends, the new Italian government recognized women's right to vote and full legal equality. Once life in Italy returns to normal and towns are rebuilt, women go straight back to the pitch. In 1946, two women's teams are formed in the town of Trieste, Italy. By 1950, the Italian Women's Football Association is formed to regulate all the teams in Italy. This organization lasts until 1959, but the women keep playing after it's dissolved. In the 1960s, there are women's teams throughout Italy, and not just competing teams, competing football associations. And most important, the matches are popular. Thousands of fans come to watch. In 1968, the Italian women's national team play their first official international match in Via Reggio against Czechoslovakia. Via Reggio is less than 40 miles from Villa Celestina, where in 1932, GFC Milan played their first unofficial match. And then, someone has an idea. Why not have a Women's World Cup? Do you remember Nini Zanetti and Losana Strigato, their letters? Why shouldn't a women's soccer team exist in Italy? Wouldn't it be interesting to see that even in this kind of sport, the Italian woman can compete and perhaps outdo foreign women? Thus, a nucleus of strong young ladies launches a brilliant initiative to establish the Gruppo Femminile Calistico in Milan. As for a women's championship, it will come later. In 1970, Czechoslovakia, Denmark, England, West Germany, Mexico, Italy, Austria, and Switzerland are set to send teams to the very first Women's World Cup. Czechoslovakia withdraws beforehand because they can't get their visas in order, but that's still eight countries that can manage to send teams. And the English FA ban is still in place. They play matches all over northern Italy in front of crowds as large as 30,000. On the 10th of July, England played Denmark in the semifinal in Milan. And I really hope that every member of GFC Milan got a chance to see that match. The final, played in turn on July 13th, saw a crowd of 40,000 fans watch Denmark defeat Italy 2-0. GFC Milan, after 38 years, finally have their championship. Thanks for listening, as always. Thanks again to Marco Gianni for his research. Check the show notes for a link to his Twitter account. You can follow this show at ForgottenXI. If you want to see some pictures of the teams, uh, join the discussion or find other goodies, uh, join our Slack channel in the show notes. You can find a link to it. If you like the show, please share it with friends or on social media and leave a review. Next time on The Forgotten Eleven, the Matildas. Ciao. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pod Tease, a production of the Mediacasters. 
rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to discover your next binge-worthy favorite. For more information, visit our website, themediacasters.com, and follow us on social platforms at The Mediacasters. This show is brought to you by Podetize, podcast hosting and done-for-you production services that get you heard by more of your ideal listeners. Visit podetize.com to book a free strategy call. That's P-O-D-E-T-I-Z-E dot com.